Well, good morning. I know it's already been said, but Merry Christmas. I guess Eve, is that only evening? I don't know. Um, Merry Christmas Eve morning, I suppose. Uh, this morning, though, we're going to hopefully tie some things together. I was thinking about what to do as I have been reading. One of the things I like to do is read the book that I'm in. And so reading through the Gospel of John multiple times, not only before we get to the book, you know, you don't like any surprises. You preach one thing in John 3, and then you find out in John 6 or 7, oh, maybe that's not quite right. So it's always a good practice to keep reading what you are reading, um, but as well thinking through the uniqueness of John, and particularly the uniqueness of John's view on the Christmas story. And so I thought we'd kind of walk through not only this, but we'll look a little bit at 1 John and even maybe glimpse back towards Revelation, um, because John just doesn't, a lot of the themes, um, the big topics that he picks up in the gospel of John kind of get flowed throughout all of his writings. And hopefully it'll set us on a good path as we worship this morning particularly as we think about the birth of Christ, which is different in John than any other gospel. And so I want to highlight that and kind of walk through it together and kind of see some of the different aspects of that in the gospel of John. But let's ask the Lord's blessing and then we'll begin this morning. Father, we do thank you this morning for your abundant kindness to us, uh, that your love is everlasting, that flows from your love within the Trinity, even as we do ponder deep things, Lord, that there is just this reality of that there is unity and distinction. There is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the unique mission upon which the Son is sent. The beginning, at least from our temporal viewpoint in history, begins as we understand Christmas where the Word, where Christ came and dwelt among us. Help us revisit those truths that we know perhaps well, but deepen our understanding, deepen our appreciation, deepen our worship of what we cannot comprehend, that you who are perfect, needing nothing, who are independent in every way, would humble yourself, that the Son would come, put on the flesh that we are so familiar with in its weakness, and be the perfect substitute and sacrifice for us, for sinners. So help us rejoice in that, and be reminded of these great truths this morning. Pray this in your Son's name. Amen. There is no traditional Christmas story in the Gospel of John. I know if you've been here long enough, you've seen that in the first chapter. And I want to revisit that. Because what you find in the Gospel of John is no nativity, no manger, no shepherds, uh, no sheep, no oxen. You don't even find the little babe in the manger. There's no star, there's no wise men. It simply begins, if you open up to John chapter 1, we'll kind of begin there and we'll kind of stay in John. Um, if we go outside, I'll try to have a few verses up on the screen maybe, but you can go there. This is definitely the kind of sermon though where you will be best served if you're looking with me and following along. So we're going to read a lot of these passages to see these different aspects of Christmas as described by John. But it begins there in chapter 1, maybe that you can even quote in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you're set off with almost a jarring moment with 
perhaps even in English, going, well, what is the word? Which becomes very clear in John chapter 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that the word is Jesus, the Messiah. And he begins with this theological understanding in a way that none of the other writers do, and it's for his own purpose, because his purpose is, as we've seen, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's what he wants you to see And so he's less concerned. It doesn't take anything away about the historicity of the nativity. It doesn't take anything away from the facts of his birth or the emphasis in Luke, say, on his humanity or in Matthew on his proper role as the Jewish Messiah and the son of David. He just wants to emphasize that you don't forget. And so I think in that way, this Christmas Eve and tomorrow is Christmas comes and you talk about these things as a family or as a father, you were teaching or you're reading the Christmas story, that you have a proper, you could say balanced view. It's not that the nativity is not important. It's just don't forget the theological component. Or you might start to look and see just a baby in a manger and forget that that baby is the same conquering king who's going to return in Revelation 19 and crush his enemies. That moment in the manger, he is no less God at that moment than ever in, say, prehistory, in the beginning, before time, or since, and never will be, because he is fully God and fully man. We've been studying the Gospel of John, and we just finished chapter 6, where we see those I am statements that Jesus is saying he is the bread of life. We understand that to receive him is to receive eternal life. I think it's fitting that we look at just in general, how does John address this idea of Christmas, Jesus becoming human, becoming, being born into a manger? Because at the core of the Christmas message is that this, the second member of the Trinity taking on humanity is dwelling among his people for a, a moment. 33 years, really only, say, three of those years of a public ministry. But in that, you're going to see all of these things, his glory, his love displayed. So I want to look at these three different aspects of Christmas according to John. And number one comes from that first chapter and is built throughout and kind of um, spread throughout the whole gospel is the theology of Christmas. That's right, there's a theology of Christmas. Of course, it makes sense. Theology being the study of God, the study of Christmas, the study of how does God engage and interact with Christmas, of course, Christmas has to be theological, but so often it can be lost in the midst of all the things that are fun and traditional. And again, those aren't bad. It's just to say they're not the main point. And even within kind of Christian tradition, you can get lost with stories and plays and all of those things and wonderful music. And forget this is about a moment in redemptive history of which is pinnacle. This is something that will never be repeated throughout time. And we're not going to take too many moments to dwell on, say, these infinite truths because we can't comprehend them. But just for a moment, think of Jesus taking on flesh, becoming human. And I don't think he views it this way. But being stuck with flesh. Granted, a resurrected body, which I don't know anything of that yet. But out of love for us, and we're going to see because of his purpose, he's going to do that. And he's going to get all the glory and honor for 
that. But it's an amazing thing because he doesn't need, this goes back to because he's God, he doesn't need to do that, yet he does that because of who he is out of his love for us. And so the theology of Christmas starts with that very truth that he is incarnated. That is, he becomes human. He takes on flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Later on, John 8, which we're not there yet in our study. So a glimpse forward. John 8, 58 says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Which kind of echoes what John the Baptist said here in the first chapter. When he bears witness in verse, verse 15, and he cries out, this was he, that is Jesus, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. It's that declaration that he was in the beginning with God, and he was God. There's unity, yet there is a distinction. It goes back to the word we looked at weeks ago, the logos, the word, is an established term, philosophical term. But even within the Hebrew, we understand in the beginning goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God spoke, logos, the word, all things into existence. Let there be light and there was light. And we're not gonna look at all these things in detail, but those first five verses, what do you see? You see those same things. He speaks the word and yet... He says he is the life and he is the light. Exactly what you see in John 1 to say all those things are really shadows to the substance of which is Christ. Now in Greek, the logos is impersonal. Simply a force, as it were, that brings about creation and existence. But in the scriptures from Genesis 1 through here, it is personal. Even in Genesis and even more so when you see it is Christ who comes down and puts on flesh. It doesn't get more personal than that. My boys are kind of into history and into Greek myths. And there's none of those myths that kind of bear a candle to the biblical story. I think that's because they're rightly labeled as myths. You see deities and all these things, but yet nothing is this personal and this unique. This isn't a story that a human would write. Yet it's the way God has done and gone about making this world Yes, sin enters it, but this is the way in which he redeems it. He is with God, and yet he is distinct. The Trinitarian language that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Perfection, yet he puts on flesh. Look at verse 14, which is probably the key verse here. You think of Christmas for me, and I think of what it is, the way, what is Christmas? This is kind of where I would go to say that the word, you understand the description, there's a lot built into that. But it is talking about Jesus, that he was there in the beginning, perfect, and yet he became flesh. That is, he puts on humanity. And he does so in a way that in no way diminishes his deity, and he dwells among us. That is, he tents among us. The, the reference would spark anyone who's reading well, at least in the Greek, you would see this is the same word that's used back in the Old Testament in the Greek version of the Old Testament, for tabernacle, that he is dwelling among them. In the Old Testament, in Israel, where did God dwell? He dwells in the tabernacle. And in, when they're wandering the wilderness, they have the tent, and it goes with them, and it moves with God, and the presence of God is there. And now the presence of God is there in the person of Jesus. 
And so in that way, he has tented or he has dwelt among us, which is going to be a key term to remember. I think as you go throughout John, because it's going to come back again. Because the same way the Father is going to send the Son is the same way Jesus will send his disciples. He does so in a way then that we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten, that term unique, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just look at a crossword, Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. It talks about Abraham looking back at the story of Isaac and that test and that says Isaac being his only son or only begotten son. Of course, he had another son. That's to say Isaac was the son of promise. He was unique. It's using this language, of course, we understand that they're not in that same way of father-son and that they've always existed together. Yet we communicated here that he is his and unique and unique in the way why in his mission that he is being sent born of a virgin through the holy spirit fully man yet fully god amazing truths and it emphasizes in verse 15 the deity that john cries out he has existed even before me despite we know john numerically or temporally, is older. The implications are massive. The Bible says that we are completely lost in our transgressions and sins. We cannot approach or communicate with a perfect and holy God. You have other places which talk in Exodus that you can't approach a holy and a perfect God. Exodus 33.20 says, you cannot see my face. That is, we cannot see. Moses, in that case, could not see God's face, for no man can see me and live. In other words, it's you can see, but you're going to die. And John himself goes on, 1 John 4, verse 12, that no one has ever seen God. It's pretty hard to have a relationship with someone you've never seen. And this is the implication here. How do we see him? We see him through Christ putting on flesh and dwelling among us. First John 5, 20. Affirming this truth at the very end of his epistle. Same writer. And he says, we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Sounds a lot like all the things we're going to see in the Gospel of John. He never moves on from this. He's never less than. There might emphasize different aspects of what Christ has done, but it's never less than he is the Son of God who gives eternal life. He's consistent with it over and over and over again. That is the true meaning of Christmas in John's Gospel. God the Son, who is God, who is with God, came to reveal God in a way he had never been revealed before. You have a moment in the tabernacle he's revealed in a certain way. This is unique in all of history, the way he is revealed to us. And he's going to give grace upon grace, as it says in the first chapter, which all points us to, ultimately, not only his incarnation, but the fact that he is the absolute perfect, then, substitute or sacrifice. It's building on all of the Old Testament that how do we get cleansed from sin? Well, you have to have an animal, in this case, sacrificed by the, the blood of goats. is not going to take away sin, bulls and goats. 
but Christ can because he's the perfect substitute. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so he's a substitute that's perfect in the way he's like us because he's fully human, but he's also the perfect and only substitute for us because he, in the way that he is not like us because he knew no sin. And so he's the one who can become righteousness on our behalf. First Peter two different places. He kind of builds this and talks on this language of this substitute, this sacrifice. He who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So how does he take our sin? He literally takes it and bears it. He bears the punishment, the penalty, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, quoting Isaiah 53 and then 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he's like us and he's not like us because we're unrighteous and he is righteous but he dies for us as a perfect substitute so that he might bring you to God again this is where it's moving towards why is this happening what's the purpose to bring us to God having put to death in flesh but made alive in Christ theology of Christmas it really changes how that you understand and celebrate not just something fun and jolly although that can be good, but it moves you into something very serious and eternal. I'm very thankful for family, very thankful for traditions and giving and all of those things, but Christmas should and does run much deeper than all of those things, than the Santa and the milk and the cookies. It's much deeper than that. In fact, that purpose of the incarnation drives us to the second point, which is not only the theology of Christmas being that we have to understand that Christ has put on flesh, but reveal then why did he do that? And John continues to go back to, well, there's purpose. So we're going to look at that secondly, not only the theology of Christmas, but the purpose of Christmas, which I think summarized pretty well in the first chapter of John and then kind of fleshed out through the rest of the gospel because John does a really good job of being a really good teacher because he's so repetitive in the best way. But you'll get verse 17 of chapter one of the gospel of John. He says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Explained is this idea of narrating, of explaining, of telling who he is, communicating him in the unique way that only could be. As I said, Exodus 33, you can't see God or live. He says the same thing, 1 John 4, 12. No one's seen God at any time, as he says in verse 18 here. To communicate Jesus in every sense is the necessary mediator between God and man, able to sympathize in every way. Hebrews 4, 14, speaking of this high priestly ministry of Christ, what can he do that no one else has ever done? He can do this because of Christmas, because of the incarnation. It says, Hebrews 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. So he's like us. He has flesh. He understands what it is to be human. 
but so yet without sin. And that should cause us, verse 16, therefore to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He has narrated God to men in a way that only he can. Two particular ways I'd say just reading the Gospel of John through, especially this week, but over the last few months that you see over again. How did, what does he narrate about God that is seemingly unique about God? And I'd say at least two things. Number one is this emphasis, and it's throughout, kind of salted, as it were, throughout the Gospel of John and 1 John and even Revelation. You see the emphasis of Jesus communicating, narrating God's glory in a way that we can understand, and also God's love. So firstly, you think about the glory of God. How does Jesus communicate the glory of God in a way that we can understand? Well, namely, he becomes flesh, right, dwells among us. Why? Go back to 14. Second half of that is not just that he dwelt among us, but beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He carries it in a way in which he's communicating God in his glory in a way that we understand. He does so in John, John chapter 2, verse 11, with his ministry, with doing miracles and miraculous things. Jesus did this in Cana, it says, John 2, 11, of Galilee as the beginning of his signs, which play a huge role in John, manifesting his glory. And his disciples believed in him. What are those four? To show I have the glory of the Father. John 11, verse 40, Jesus says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And John 17, 5, in the high priestly prayer, it says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's the glory that you see through the ministry of Christ in a way that helps us understand this is what it is for God to be magnificent and wonderful. He's the exact imprint of God. Hebrews 1 says, he's the radiance, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, of his glory, the exact reputation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He communicates God's glory to us because he's uniquely able to do so because he's fully God and he's fully human. But he also communicates God's love. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, right? He gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send this first advent. The Christmas story is not one of condemnation. And you hold that in balance with revelation because his second coming is not going to be like his first coming. His first coming is to save. The second one is going to be distinctly for judgment. So Christmas becomes very uniquely about salvation. Purpose. Why? To save a people for his name sake. Even you go to the end of John, John 18, and you have that interaction, which we'll get there soon enough, with Pilate. Are you a king? Well, you say that I am a king, and he says, this is what Jesus says in verse 37 of John 18, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world, that is to say, this is the purpose of Christmas, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. 
what is a witness of that throughout John. Another huge word mentioned all through chapter 1 and mentioned throughout the book, Gospel of John. It is witnessing that Jesus is the Son of God. He's bearing witness in his life and his ministry and even his death and then finally his resurrection that he is the Son of God. That's the purpose of Christmas, the purpose of the incarnation. It communicates the glory and it communicates love. And, and John, John's known as the disciple of love because he mentions it so often. For John 13, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would part out of this world, he says that he has loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And then 1 John 3, 1. 1 John is full of the same topic of love. It says, see how great a love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God. That, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him distinctive that we would be known by our love. Why? Because we are of the one who has shown us the Father's love, which is an amazing truth. Just as I said, 15, 19, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. And that same Trinitarian love for the Son is the same way in which he loves us. It's an everlasting covenantal love that only he can love us with. Why? Because he is fully God and he is fully human in every way. Think of when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we say those things. We say this, this we, we've been, uh, it's the new covenant, right? That's been inaugurated in his blood in which he has loved us in that way. Why? By how? By dying for us, by bearing our sin. It's very explicit. If you look at John 10, verse 17, it says, for this reason, the father loves me because why? I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. The word becomes flesh, dwells among us for a purpose, so that he could give his flesh for the life of the world. If there was any confusion in John 6, in all the imagery, and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. You go, well, that sounds really disgusting. Well, A, he's talking figuratively, but also he's trying to communicate you have to personalize, understand, believe in me. And if you do so, there is life. In fact, right, the bread of life, the living water, which you'll never thirst again. He's saying that's what I offer. Sinners can receive grace upon grace because he came to die for us. And in that way, Christmas really is part of a story. Of course it is. And so the incarnation happens and it in the ministry, the earthly ministry of Christ, it happens over years, but moves us towards even thinking of April and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. But throughout the Gospel of John, the meaning or the purpose of Christmas becomes pretty clear. That the Word becomes flesh so that He would reveal the glory of God as never before. It's one of the reasons I don't give the disciples a very difficult time. Would, would you have believed Think of Peter and his kind of kicking against Jesus and saying, no, yes, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, but no, you're not going to die. And Jesus responds, not in John, but he does so elsewhere in Mark and other places and says, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't understand that the suffering precedes the future glory because that is so glorious we can't comprehend how anyone, lest God himself, would suffer for us who are completely 
undeserved. And so he reveals his glory. And then, of course, his love for us in this such a unique and powerful way that has never happened before. Yes, you see God revealed in the Old Testament, his glory, his perfection. You see, and I'd argue, as those who look at the Old Testament and say God's kind of mean, I'd say, well, no, look at the grace he shows over and over again to Israel. You see his grace, you see his love, his kindness, his faithfulness to his covenant with Israel over and over and over again. He's loving and kind there. But in this unique way, we see God narrating himself through the Son. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. What is the result of this accomplished purpose, this mission, which we know is the purpose, and it is accomplished in this very gospel? How does it work itself out through history? It works itself out both in judgment and in salvation. And the line in the sand that gets drawn from the very beginning of chapter one throughout the gospel is, do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God? And in that way, like I said, you give the disciples a little bit of a pass in one way of their humanity getting in the way of going, but this is a human or this is the baby in a manger. That's the line of the sand. What do you believe about who he is? Determines your eternal destiny. How can that be? Do you view him as a helpless babe? You could say even in his ministry, someone who is foolish, who they want to make king if he just would get along in John 6, but yet he says things that are so difficult that they walk away. He keeps saying them to the point where they plan to kill him and ultimately crucify him. So is he foolish? Or do you view him as the triumphant king? Go to Revelation 19 when he returns in power and in glory. You got to hold Revelation within this as well, that he is the coming, the conquering king. It leads to the result of Christmas, which is simply either judgment or salvation. Really only two ways. There's not five, there's not six. Either one who remains under judgment for their own sin or one who is saved because their sin is bore by Christ on the tree. You see it over and over and over again in John. And we'll pick just a couple different places here. But John chapter three, verse 18, right after John three sixteen, he says, he who believes in me is not judged. That's good. It also says he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Like chapter one, who is that? That's clearly Christ, the unique one. This is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world. The men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And John chapter 12, picking up on the light. Remember I said light's so, such a big thing in John from the very beginning. He's the light, the life of the world. But in going, I am the light. John 12, verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This is a massive distinction because this is Christmas. This is his first coming. He came to save it's not to say he's not coming back to judge. It's to say, I'm not here right now to judge. He who rejects me does not receive my words, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak for myself, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal 
life. If for the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And he doesn't do anything independent throughout his earthly ministry of the Father. He's saying, what I am telling you is whether you believe or not will determine judgment or salvation over and over again. Let's get to the end. Revelation 21. So this is after the millennial reign of chapter 20, the new heavens and the new earth. John, same writer, in his vision, he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. That is to say, all of these things will work to even experience now. They are the first things which will one day pass away. But notice the language. There's something beginning. You could say at creation, but a pretty big move forward at the incarnation, at Christmas, and it will be completed at the end of this millennial kingdom when everything will be made new, a new heavens and a new earth. That is to say, what we see in Christ coming to dwell and tent among people is a foretaste of what is to come. So you see the theology, the purpose, and the result of Christmas is all pointing to eventually this moment, this time, where there will be no longer any death, no longer any mourning, crying, or pain when he returns a second time, which of course we celebrate his first coming because it brings salvation, but we get excited and hopeful and encouraged and I think motivated and patient because we know one day he will fix all the things that we go, these things are wrong and need to be made right. He will return and make them right. The question then becomes of Christmas, what is the impact now? What do we do in the meantime between now and Revelation 21? And of course, there's a lot that's going to happen between Revelation 19 and 20. But you know, Revelation 20, what, what, are, what is the church to do? I think this is just an amazing truth. You can turn with me. I think uh, John 20, this is worth looking. I don't have it up, but... John chapter 20, verse 21 through 23. Because one of the most amazing things about as he narrates God to the world, to us, he's the one, right, who is here, who is tabernacling in his earthly ministry, communicating the Father's will, preaching. Say, Matthew talks, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Preaching, you better believe in me. This good news. And you see this line that it is the Father who sent the Son. And then this is unbelievable. But the Son sends someone. Look at John 20, verse 21. It says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Which is a pretty amazing picture. Again, you've got the Trinity, God himself, triune. The Father sending the Son, he's going to send his Spirit, he's going to send it to you, and he's going to then send you. And that's pictured here, verse 22, that when he had said this, because this is pre-Acts 2, 
So it seems to look forward to Acts chapter 2, at least, whether they were empowered for till the moment of Acts 2, or this is just distinctive, or just looks forward to what will happen in the future. You see the picture here. He breathes on them, which, of course, the Spirit is breath. Uh, the Spirit moves on the waters in Genesis chapter 1 or 2. He breathes on them and says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. That is to say, I am giving you the message of the gospel. Matthew 18 puts it a different way of, of, of what you're going to bind. Um, or Matthew 16, what you're going to bind on earth will be loosed or bound in heaven. What you're going to loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is to say, you have an eternal message which can save people, not just for this life, but for eternity. Why? Because the one the Father sent sent you the Spirit and gave you this message to go out and preach to a lost and dying world. So that's what we're to call do in the meanwhile, even as you think of all these aspects of Christmas, we haven't even touched on the historical narrative. But again, John's not saying it's not important. He's just saying, keep in mind, there is a theological purpose and there is a reality of the incarnation of the Father sending the Son to put on flesh to dwell among us. And then this amazing truth that he sends his people. And how does God tent with the world today? Say so he tented in his tabernacle. That's where the presence of God was. The temple. The son himself. But the church, you, he says, become God's representation on earth. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That spiritual house he's talking about is tabernacle. It is temple. We don't have a temple building. That same way we have the people who are indwelt by the Spirit who are offering up not animal sacrifices but spiritual ones acceptable to God through Christ. So how is God dwelling on earth today? It is through his spirit indwelling individuals who have believed in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior because his spirit, the Holy Spirit, has tented inside of them. That is the true blessed reality of Christmas. Christmas is it's a wonderful time. I love it. We might even get some fitting snow tomorrow. But be reminded of the theology of Christmas from John. And don't forget what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And that he comes in salvation here, and they also will return in judgment. But even in the meanwhile, you and I are his representatives. May we represent him well, even as we learn and we grow and mature in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. What amazing truths, Lord, that we in so many ways, can only glimpse and grasp. And perhaps as we mature and we age, we will come to know them better as we experience your love for us, as you have been faithful in different ways as we grow each year and we pass each new Christmas. Or maybe look back and say, look at all the ways you have proven faithful to us. And let us not miss the reality as we minister to one another, as we minister and share the gospel and evangelize the lost in the world. Lord, that it is the mission given to us 
that the sun came amazing, unbelievably put on flesh and dwelt among us. Yet maybe even just as shocking that he would come find a home in us as the Spirit indwells us and empowers us for ministry. Lord, help us to be filled with the Spirit, that is, to be controlled by the Spirit in the way that we live. And may we live in such a way that people do see a difference because we are living, we are celebrating even things like Christmas differently because we understand what is behind that theologically and what is behind that in redemptive history as Christ came and dwelt among us. We just pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.